going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 um, this morning. Um, particularly verses 14 through 22. In this passage, Paul is continuing to elaborate on uh, the call that he first issued at the end of chapter 9 and then warned them about at the beginning of chapter 10. And that call is specifically to, to run the race that is the Christian life. And here, Paul continues to elaborate on that call. And so let's look at what he has to add to it. Now, we'll start at verse 11, chapter 10, with a focus on verses 14 through 22. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's ask the Lord to bless uh, the preaching of his word. Dear Almighty God, Lord, we are uh, like dumb rocks without the blessing of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and so we pray that you would cause your spirit to rest on us and open our minds and hearts and cause your word to penetrate deeply. We have things on our minds, Lord, we all do. Some good things, some merely distractions, and we pray, Lord, that you would receive those things, receive our burdens, so that, Lord, we can give a fuller attention to what you would speak to us now, illuminate to our minds and hearts, and, and change us, encourage us, and shape us after the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. sure some of you are familiar with this, but the late 1800s and early 1900s were a turbulent time in modern church history. 
that time there was a movement called liberalism that was sweeping across the country, and as it did, it was forcing Christians to reevaluate the boundaries of their faith. It was forcing them to reckon with what they have to believe, what they can and can't do. In other words, it was forcing them to clarify just where to draw the line between Christianity and non-Christianity. Happens to be the debate, you may be familiar with this as well, out of which the OPC split off from the mainline Presbyterian church. It's what Machen sought to answer in his book, uh, Christianity and Liberalism. But perhaps the best known and most influential response was a reactive movement called fundamentalism. Fundamentalism sought to draw the line at five fundamentals, hence the name. But it was also more than that. It gave birth to a defensive ideology of sorts that tried to hold on to a traditional Christian ethic as well. And as a result, it also drew the line around drinking and smoking, dancing, watching movies, and more. And I have no doubt that at least a number of you are familiar with that and have grappled with it yourself. And yet they still didn't seem to guarantee the safety that they hoped. So further questions about where to draw the line followed, and, and they continue to follow. So the question is, where do we draw the line, or how do we know where to draw the line? That's something that the Corinthians are grappling with here as well. And so Paul, in this passage, is giving his response, first, by drawing the line, second, by proving it, and third, by drawing out its implications. And so let's look at these in turn. Point one, the line. Paul says, verse 15, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. It's simple, right? If in chapter 9, verse 24, we're called to run this race, and if in verse 13, because of Christ we can, then let's do it. Let's run. Let's flee idolatry, and for that matter, anything that could possibly tempt us toward idolatry. Let's learn from the example of the Israelites. In chapter 10, verse 7, not be idolaters as some of them were. And yet, this, this really wouldn't have appeared so simple to the Corinthians. In fact, for as straightforward as it sounds, it probably would have been confusing. Because you see, Paul isn't talking about idolatry in a general sense, but a specific one. He's taking them back again to the question that they raised and he responded to in the beginning of chapter 8 about whether participating in cultic sacrifices and eating their food is really idolatry or not. You're like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Well, probably not, right? If Paul says, don't join with pagans in their cultic sacrifices, then don't. End of story. And yet, it's still a bit more complicated. You see, their supermarkets, they don't have a kosher aisle, as it were. So one commentator notes, almost all of the meat in their markets was the product of some form of idolatry. And almost all of the meals with non-Christians, which was the entire social and economic network that they lived in, were eaten in honor of an idol. And so, unlike today, if you wanted to eat, or if you wanted to join in to the social and economic landscape, then, then you were going to come into contact with food and festivities associated with idols. 
And yet even that isn't the full extent of the problem because, you see, the Corinthians that raised this question also knew, as Paul already asserted and will again in this very passage, that these idols, that these idols aren't actually anything. And the food that's been sacrificed to them hasn't actually changed. It's just food, and the idol is just a hunk of wood or stone. And so, perhaps now you can start to see how this sounds strange. If I'm supposed to run this race, and I can run this race by escaping temptation, then why therefore must I flee joining my pagan neighbors and co-workers in their idol worship, which I don't believe in, does nothing to the food, and is nothing but wood and stone? Perhaps even more simply, how is it idolatry if there's no idol, right? How is this not some arbitrary rule, or on what basis is this really a problem? And so Paul goes on to explain, point to the rationale. Paul says, verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. I'm, I'm not trying to pull one over on you. I get that you could possibly be confused about how all this fits together. So, so judge for yourself. You, think about this. And therefore, interestingly, even though Paul has the authority to put a period after drawing the line and say, just simply, because I said so, like a parent to a child, he doesn't. Instead, he, he goes on it at length to reason with them. To reason with the folks that don't understand, and firstly, by drawing their attention to the Lord's Supper. He says, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so what's going on here? Well, there's perhaps a lot us modern Christians could learn from this, but that's not Paul's point. You see, what's interesting here is this isn't new information for the Corinthians, but it's old information. From a pedagogical perspective, he's moving from the known to the unknown, trying to leverage what they already know to teach them something about what they need to know. And so what is it that they already know and perhaps we need to learn? Well, it's that our participation in the Lord's Supper is not an innocuous thing. But it's a spiritually efficacious thing from which no one who participates is excluded. Key word here is clearly participation. Paul uses that word in astonishing six times in this short passage. It comes from a Greek word that many of you are probably familiar with. It's the word koinonia, which is often translated fellowship or to be joined with one another. It's the particular idea that Paul's fleshing out in verse 17 with this heavy emphasis on oneness. Look at, the, look at how the word one is used in verse 17. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. And why? Here's the reason. For we all partake of, participate in, are joined with the one bread. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that even though we didn't offer the sacrifice directly, nor the worship it was meant to convey, or the benefits it was meant to secure, our participation in eating it 
necessarily unites us to them both. It means no one who participates can, at the same time, stand outside of it, be separate from it. It's why Paul gives us that sobering warning in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. 29. It says, anybody who eats and drinks, i.e. participates in the Lord's Supper without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Point is, on either side of this, whether you're discerning or not, something is happening in the Lord's Supper, and no one is able to participate in it without at the same time being connected to it. And as it happens, that's neither new or unique either. As Paul points out in verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And the answer again, of course, is yes. In just the same way as in the Lord's Supper, participation in eating is a participation in the offering itself, and by it then both the worship and benefits that belong to it. And so then, what does that mean for the Corinthians and how they should understand their participation in idol feasts? Point three, the implication. Paul says, verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? And if we were just to pause there, and if, if that were read to the Corinthians in that letter and just pause there, we'd almost expect Paul to go back on what he had said earlier and say, well, yes. Because to do so would at least make sense of why participating in these idol feasts is a problem. It's because in all actuality, there is some kind of God in these man-made hunks of wood and stone after all. But instead, Paul holds on. And again, he says, no. So that begs the same question. How exactly is this a problem? How is it idolatry if there's no, no idol? And his answer is, verse 20, he says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with, in fellowship with, or joined with demons. And in hearing that, I don't know about you, but you might ask, well, how did we get here, Paul? How do we move from an idol isn't anything to worship and fellowship of demons? Haven't you stepped out a little too far? No, because... See, this too happens to be old territory. The phrase they offered to demons and not to God is a footnote to what Moses told the Israelites in his last address before his death. He said, Deuteronomy 32, 17, they, the Israelites, sacrificed to demons that were no gods. There's the reference. But now listen to what Moses says as he goes on. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded, and why you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it, and He spurned them because of the provocation of His sons and daughters, And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. 
They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol. It devours the earth in its increase, and it sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Whoa, right? Can you see what Paul is getting at here? It, it's that the implications of their friendship with idol feasts is, again, not an innocuous affair. But just like the Lord's Supper and, and the Israelite offerings, a spiritually efficacious one from which no one who participates is excluded. And now just think about that. Paul is saying that even though the idol isn't anything, even though the food isn't anything, even though they know all of that, their participation is still a problem because, just like God told the Israelites through Moses, there's a dark spiritual reality at work in these things that is so prevalent and so real that their hearts can't help but be touched by it and even yoked together with it. Think again about what Paul says. I do not want you to be participants with in fellowship with, joined with, not hunks of wood and stone, not inanimate objects, but demons. In other words, there's more going on here than meets the eye. And what Paul's insinuating is that they should know that. Perhaps they couldn't name it. Perhaps they couldn't give a theological explanation for it, but they should have been able to sense it. And that's what he brings to bear on them here. He so he continues most necessarily by reasserting where the line needs to be. Verse 21, he says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And why? Because, again, there is something going on here, and it's incompatible with who you are now in Christ. You don't belong to demons anymore, and you can't keep going back to demon tables. You can't keep one foot in each of these camps and yet it's even more than that, as we read in Deuteronomy. As Paul concludes verse 22, he says, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Again, it's to say, will you now persist in this like they did and provoke the Lord to anger, to that anger that, that burns the foundations of the mountains? It's one of those um, who-do-you-think-you-are kinds of questions. And with it, Perhaps at last they're supposed to come to their senses and say, no, we're not going there. Uncle, I'm going to learn from their example and flee from every opportunity to join in pagan sacrifices. And thus that's it. Problem raised in chapter 8, problem solved in chapter 10. This is where the Corinthians are supposed to draw the line, and that's great, Right? And yet, what exactly does this have to do with us? By the grace of God, we no longer live in a day and age that is so fraught with such explicit expressions of idolatry. So is this, is Paul saying, well, you're good. This is an easy one for you. Just, just check that box and move on to the next thing. Glad you, glad you understood that. And, and it is that, in a certain way, Paul does give the Corinthians specific direction on this. 
and it does legitimately apply to us. Don't join your pagan neighbors in their idol sacrifices. Perhaps you already, already knew that, and that's good. But his diagnosis, if we look at that, of what's going on in idolatry should serve as a much broader warning to us. You see, what's especially interesting about these Corinthians in particular is that they are a whole lot like us. Despite living in a super idolatrous, super superstitious world, they aren't like their brothers and sisters who felt conscious bound to avoid these idol feasts because they wrongly thought that there was something in the idol. There was a God in the idol. Instead, these Corinthians, they know better. In fact, that's the primary ground for their argument in the first place. It's, it's since they belong to Christ and are free in Christ, and since these idols are nothing and they're powerless, and, they're, and there's nothing wrong with the food, then they're safe to do what they want. That's the statement, everything is lawful. I can do whatever I want. I'm free. I'm safe. And in a certain way, it's like they have a secular worldview then. And yet, as we listen here, in the very same breath that, that Paul affirms that these idols are nothing and that the food hasn't changed, he also asserts that their participations, participation in these things is, in fact, idolatrous. We're not to be idolaters as some of them were. And the reason is because as much as our world is physical, and we know that, it's also spiritual. There is a genuine, real spiritual reality at work in these activities, in our world. And that's a reality that ought to revise our own often overly secularized, overly physical worldview. Despite our belonging to Christ, despite our freedom in Christ, and despite our inherent, the inherent impotence of these idols, there is a dark spiritual dimension that makes use of these things, and we are not immune to their effects. And so we too need to guard our hearts, both specifically and broadly, and flee from idolatry, generally. And that might actually be even more difficult today than it was in theirs and so now the question again, how do we know how to draw the line? Well, in just the same way that Paul instructs the Corinthians, by being sensible. That's what we need to take away from here, by being sensible. You see, if, if all Paul was after was the line, he could have stopped at verse 14, flee from idolatry. Or he could have started with verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. End of story keep this line, you're safe. In fact, he could have started with that all the way back in chapter 8 even and saved a whole bunch of paper, but he doesn't. And in fact, even here, this passage is not the end of the story. Paul keeps on going straight through this to the end of chapter 10 and then the start of chapter 11. And so what for? Well, because he wants them to learn how to navigate this world of both overt and respectable sins and explicit and subtle idolatries and temptations. He says, verse 15, I speak to you as sensible people, judge for yourselves. This isn't Paul just being respectful or friendly, but a call to be more sensitive to their conscience and the Word of God and where these connect to their hearts. See, as much as Paul does draw a line here, that's not the end of it. 
That didn't work for the Pharisees. It, it didn't work for the fundamentalists either. Instead, Paul wants to gain a real, before the Lord, heart-level honesty about where they're at and why. It's to learn how to recognize that while all things are lawful, not all things are helpful. And that's something that we need to learn too. For instance, do you ever take the time before the Lord and His Word to ask yourself what's really going on when you take that drink or that drug to your mouth? Are you concerned to rejoice in the good blessings of God that, that He would cause Tylenol or, or something that would make you happy to fall into your path or to escape from the path that the Lord has given you to walk? What's really going on when your eyes linger on the shape of the opposite sex? Are you praising God for the beauty that He's created, or are you lusting after what belongs to another? What's really going on when you take an accounting of your finances? Look at what all I can do for the Lord. Look at what privilege He's given me to steward, or look what all I can do now for me. And as we interact with those questions and so many more, don't get me wrong, most of the time they don't give us simple yes or no answers. They're not purely evil or good, but some kind of mixture of them both. But nonetheless, as we go there, and Paul is, is encouraging us to go there, we, we find an increasing sensitivity to where our hearts really are. It's quite a lot like what Jesus prompted in his Sermon on the Mount we all remember it well, and we, we almost want to cry uncle in the middle of it. Don't keep going through the commandments. You remember Matthew 5, 21 on, on murder. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother with, will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, Jesus is not drawing out a whole bunch of new commandments. In fact, he summarizes all of them in just two, but he's connecting the line of the commandment to where it crosses our heart. And that's what Paul is teaching the Corinthians and us here. It's to gain a sensibility about where our hearts really are so that we can be better equipped to guard our hearts. And yet at the same time, again, just like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we can't help but be convicted by this exercise, right? Because as we go deeper in our own hearts, we, we don't find that it gets cleaner and cleaner and happier and happier, but, but dirtier and nastier and nastier. And as a result, this sensibility gives us a much deeper, broader, and more sensible appreciation of just how sinful, wicked, and weak we really are. And reciprocally, just how badly we need help. It's what caused Paul at the end of Romans 7 as he goes there himself, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's a hopeless cause. And yet that's the wonderful irony of Paul's choice of illustration. It's inspired of all things. He, he uses the Lord's Supper to unveil the idolatry at work on and in our own hearts but it also can't help but remind us of what Christ has done for us. You see, it's here in the sacrament that God kindly reminds us again and again and again to taste and see with our senses that He is actually this good, 
that even though he is fully sensible to just how deep and broad our idolatries lie, how deep they go, how weak and wretched and hopeless we actually are, so, so deep that we're afraid to admit it to ourselves in private, he came not in anger to crush us, but for us. He spilt his blood for our sins. His body was broken for our reconciliation, to reconcile us to himself, to be with us. And so, as we now prepare to meet the Lord at his table, let's be reawakened to the sweetness of his once-for-all offering for us, and thereby encouraged and strengthened in our participation with one another and with him to exercise greater sensibility to the guarding of our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, we are prone to wander and leave the God we love. We are far more sinful than, than we realize, far more selfish, far more prone to treat you like that rich uncle that we only go to when things are too bad, so bad that we have to deal with them. And so, Lord, we pray that as Paul encouraged the Corinthians that you might give us to greater, greater sensibility to where our own hearts are. And in that, Lord, as we are confronted with the reality of our own sinfulness and just how deep and broad it goes, how deep and broad your grace goes in Christ, it is enough to cover over all our sins. And so, Lord, help us to rejoice as we know who we really are because we learn more and more who Christ really is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.